Good morning, good morning, won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning, good morning to you. And many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues Black Table Talk Edition. I am your host today, Shante Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. Well, the people have spoken. I did put out a poll to ask, where would you all like us to go next? And you all said, historically, historical black readings and works. So that's where we are today. And we'll probably be here for the month of November and the month of December. So in order to kind of, I guess, give us a wider range of historical figures and their writings that are out here, I chose to pick this up. This is something I think every black household probably needs a copy of. Now, I don't know if they have it in a larger size, but um, this is Black Voices. So Signet Classics has picked this up and it is an anthology of African-American literature. Now, I did get this recommendation from a gentleman on TikTok. I cannot remember his, his page right now, but um, I'll come back in and I'll probably link him in the comment section. But this is, this right here, this right here is fantastic. It's got some of everybody in it. And as I was going through, I said, oh, this has an excerpt of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, a lot of people have probably seen the, the film um, based on the autobiography, but I said, man, what better time than to introduce some people to <laughs> the autobiography of Malcolm X. So we're going to read that. We're going to start reading it today. But before we start reading that today, I am going to be dropping some words, some humorous things from this book here. This is a new release. Um, just came out this year. It is called Historically Black Phrases from I Ain't One of Your Little Friends to Who All Gonna Be There. And I'll tell you, I am enjoying reading this book and chuckling to myself for all of the Black euphemisms that are in here that are just common to us. And I actually saw somebody use one the other day um, in my comment sections and they were responding to a white person in my comment section and the white person had no idea what they were saying or what they meant. So I had to go in my comment section and translate. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So if you are a white person who is watching my broadcast, go pick this up, please. So you can understand a little bit more about our phraseology because sometimes 
we're talking to each other and you, you guys don't get it. Or we're using a phrase that you have no clue what it means. Um, and so her phrase that she used was, it would be too much like right. And I think it's under the post where um, it's a reel on the the original creator of the Jack Daniels um, whiskey recipe. And the person in the comments was like, oh, that, that family needs reparations. And another person chimed in and said, yeah, that would be too much like right. And then they put all these question marks because they didn't understand the phrase. So I had to translate. But anyway, that phrase is in this book. So I am actually in section two, and I'm going to read you a couple of the phrases before we get into Malcolm X autobiography, chapter one. This is chapter two, and it is cautions and warnings. This is how we speak, and there's so much. There's, there's still a lot that is not in this book, but here's one. Anybody ever say this? Cut the food. It can be used a variety of ways too. It is phonetic with an optional emphasis on fool. Translation. <laughs> Translation to misbehave or act out. Usage. When someone has really shown out, usually in a disruptive manner, can also describe entertaining actions such as performances, also known as cutting up. Example. Cassius and Clay got in a fight during breakfast in the cafeteria. When the principal broke them up, she said, so y'all woke up and decided to cut the food this morning? Cut the food. That's what it means. All right, here's another one. Now, I have not heard this one, um, but apparently it's, it's said, okay? Don't let the smooth taste fool you. Anybody ever heard that before? Don't let the smooth taste fool you. I got a thumbs up. Okay. Pronunciation. Don't let the smooth taste fool you. Translation. I may be smiling and friendly on the surface, but you can still catch these hands. <laughs> Usage. Akin to the more common, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Now, I say that one quite a bit. This directive is often said by someone who seems relatively calm but has been suppressing their real feelings or is otherwise running out of patience. See, I say stuff like, you're skating on thin ice. <laughs> Anybody ever say that? you skating on thin ice? I say that. I say, don't mistake my kindness um, for weakness. Um, yeah. If accompanied by an alcoholic beverage in hand, this warning may actually be a threat. So tiptoe and cool it. Example, after being reprimanded by her neighbor for just a little too long, Keisha took a sip of her wine, long blinked, and said in a calm voice, Karen, don't let the smooth taste fool you. If you come over to my door again to complain about this parking situation, we gonna have a problem. She closed the door in Karen's face and went on about her business. Now, the other one I've heard is um, still waters run deep. In other words, just because a person is quiet doesn't mean that you won't catch those hands. <laughs> All right, here's another one. And those of you who are coming in, I'm reading right now from historically black phrases from I ain't one of your little friends to who all gonna be there. I think this is a perfect gift, especially for 
um, your friends that like to cut up, this is a perfect gift. And they like to read great coffee table book, great conversation book. All right, here's another one. Who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I say that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Who you think you're talking to? Translation. You must not be speaking to me because this language and behavior are fully inappropriate and you are moments away from getting handled. Mm -hmm. Yep. Usage. Often but not always, the speaker is a person with authority granted either by a reputable authorizer or by themselves who feels as if they are being disrespected by the language and or tone of the spoken to. Almost always rhetorical. It don't need no response. <laughs> It is a statement disguised as a question, i.e., I know you're not talking to me. <laughs> it should be heard as, you shouldn't be talking to me like that. You know, I say this quite a bit to myself sometimes when I get in my comment section and I see people being disrespectful. And I just, you know, zoom in a little bit and I'm like, no ma'am and no sir. What, what what are we doing? What are we doing in the comments? What what What's going on? right? The statement version, I don't know who you think you're talking to is more direct. Example, when a student began raising his voice and challenge to his teacher, Ms. Park's question, who do you think you're talking to? The student hearing the tone knew the question was not one that needed answering and did not make the mistake of trying. Do you realize people actually make the mistake of trying to answer that question? Don't try it with your parents, okay? <laughs> if my mother said, who you think you're talking to? That was the time to just zip it. <laughs> and just keep going. Quiet and keep going. Quiet, quiet and keep going. And of course, that leads us to catch these hands. You can catch these hands to be on the receiving end of a well-deserved butt whooping or butt kicking. Usage. Like to lay or put hands on. This is an admonition of clear and present danger. <laughs> when someone tells you you can catch these hands, get out of the way. <laughs> now, if you've known them for not being able to be a fighter and they say that, okay, you can kind of let it slide, right? But if this is a person known to beat people up, and just known to leave a trail of beat up people in their wake. Just get out of the way, okay? When used with these, it is the speaker whose hands are to be caught by the spoken to in said assault. When those is used, someone else will be catching another person's hands. For example, while hosting the Love and Hip Hop Atlanta reunion, Nina could clearly see a fight brewing. Just before Joseline leapt into action against Stevie J, Nina said to herself, oh, Stevie J is about to catch them hands. And of course, we're going to stop here with this one. This is one of the all-time... <laughs> if you said, who do you think you're talking to, to your mother, you should make sure you're not within arm's reach. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Some of us are doing better about that, right? We're not... We're not laying hands on the children as much in the black community. This is good. This is good because it's killing brain cells. You know, I don't know who lied and told us that beating your kids is going to make them smarter, but it actually does not. <laughs>
So this is a historically classic black phrase. Y'all ready? Keep my name out your mouth. <laughs> we don't say keep my name out of your mouth. No, we don't do that. We say keep my name out your mouth. And it's usually faster than that, right? Translation, stop talking about me, my family, my family name, mentioning anybody connected with me in my goings on and my business and my doings. Keep my name out your mouth. Mm -hmm. Used by the speaker as forcibly as possible to stop someone from talking about them. The intention is a verbal cease and desist. Because if you do not follow the verbal cease and desist, then that goes back to the other phrase, you can catch these hands, right? This can be said playfully, but usually it's not lighthearted. Example, Melanie was tired of hearing secondhand comments about what Jamie had to say about her. So when they finally crossed paths at a bodega one afternoon, Melanie confronted her saying, keep my name out your mouth. And we know it probably went with a couple other words, right? So this is the section called cautions and warnings. This does have other sections like, let's see, storytelling, um, consequences and repercussions, inspiring and affirming phrases, um, phrases just that come out of the black church. I can't wait to read some of those. <laughs> Units of measure. You know how we do with our units of measure. Anybody ever heard of a teach? Anybody? A teach of this and a teach of that when you're measuring. The real cooks for Thanksgiving measure in teaches. So if you've never heard teach, just a teach of it, check on your cooks, okay? Because your real cooks use a pinch of this and a teach of that. That's how they, and they stir, mm -hmm. they stir until they get a nod from the, a, a divine nod from the ancestors. <laughs> and then they know your food is ready. If you got people in your kitchen who are cooking and they don't know about a pinch in a teach, something's going on. Just check, check on your cooks for Thanksgiving. Okay. They have a section on queer and trans words that came out of the queer and trans community. They have a section on love, uh, sex, and relations, and they have a section called The Kitchen Sink. This is a highly entertaining book. I am just, it's very entertaining. So if you're looking for something a little lighthearted, um, if you're looking for something a little humorous, but also educational about language and how we use language in the Black community, check out this book. It's called Historically Black Phrases by Jared Hill and Travell Anderson. All right. So since you guys said, let's get into some historical black literature, I have again, the anthology Black Voices, and we're kicking it off with their excerpt of Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X, chapter one, Nightmare. Malcolm X lived from 1925 to 1965. The legend, aura, and mystique surrounding Malcolm X, an epitome of the new Black nationalism, 
was clearly reflected in 1967 with the publication of For Malcolm, an anthology of poems on the life and death of Malcolm X, edited by Dudley Randall and Margaret Burroughs. Malcolm X was born in Omaha, Nebraska. He was the seventh child of Reverend Earl Little, a Baptist minister from the West Indies and an organizer for Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. The family was continually on the move and the young Malcolm's early years were spent in Omaha, Milwaukee, Lansing, Michigan, and Roxbury, a suburb of Boston. He became a black Muslim, was an assistant minister in Detroit, and a founder of Muslim temples throughout the United States. He rose to prominence in the hierarchy of the black Islamic movement, second only to prophet Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm visited Mecca and made two trips to Africa. In 1964, he broke with Elijah Muhammad, formed his own organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, to concentrate on political rights for Black Americans, and also organized his own Islamic religious center, the Muslim Mosque, Inc. On February 21st, 1965, during a meeting of his political organization in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, he was shot and killed. The Autobiography of Malcolm X, published in 1965, has become a classic contemporary black nationalist of black nationalist thinking. Following is the first chapter of the book. Now, um, when I was growing up, one of my uncles who was a black Muslim, um, he would often tell me about this particular time with Malcolm's assassination. And he was telling me stuff that is just now coming out with some of the reports that I never forgot. Like, um, one of the things he talked talked to me about, and this was, I was like, had to be maybe nine or 10 years old, but he would talk to me about the fact that on the day that he was assassinated, that the, all of the people that were supposed to be in place, like the police and all of that, he was saying that, um, there were no police nearby when he was assassinated. Like everybody kind of had vacated within like a mile radius. And so I never really kind of like thought about all of that stuff until recently when all of these reports and things were coming out and people were giving confessions on their deathbed, deathbed about what happened and what went down. So I just, that always stayed in the back of my mind that, um, some shady stuff went down when it came to his assassination. Chapter one, nightmare. When my mother was pregnant with me, Malcolm says, she told me later a party of hooded Ku Klux Klan riders galloped up to our home in Omaha, Nebraska one night. Surrounding the house, brandishing their shotguns and rifles, they shouted for my father to come out. My mother went to the front door and opened it. Standing where they could see her pregnant condition, she told them that she was alone with her three small children and that my father was away preaching in Milwaukee. The Klansmen shouted threats and warnings at her that we had better get out of town because the good Christian white people were not going to stand for my father spreading trouble among the good Negroes of Omaha with the back to Africa preachings of Marcus Garvey. My father, the Reverend Earl Little, was a Baptist minister a dedicated organizer for Marcus Aurelius Garvey's UNIA. With the help of such disciples as my father, Garvey from his headquarters in New York City's Harlem was raising the banner of black race purity 
and exhorting the Negro masses to return to their ancestral African homeland, a cause which it made Garvey the most controversial black man on earth. Still shouting threats, the Klansmen finally spurred their horses and galloped around the house, shattering every window pane with their gun butts. Then they rode off into the night, their torches flaring as suddenly as they had come. Now, this is a story that is important to me because the same thing happened to my family, except my great grandfather um, came to the door. <laughs> and he came to the door. This is um, on our property in North Carolina, 40 acres of land. They were doing this all the time. They were riding up to people's house, trying to scare them, trying to terrorize them, trying to get them to leave town so that they could steal their property. They could just take over their land. This was happening all across the South. Now, my great-grandfather, when this happened, he came to the door with a shotgun. And he would go down toward the end of his property, closer to, you know, the street. And he would stand there with his shotgun pointed at them as they rode by. And he gave my great aunts, including my grandmother, instructions that, hey, if they come by and they harm me and I go down, he trained all of his children to shoot, 12 children. He said, the when I go down, I need the next one of y'all to come out with your gun and start shooting. When you go down, I need the next person to come out and start shooting. And they were trained that this is what they did. This is what they were supposed to do. The next person comes out of the house with a gun and starts shooting until everybody was down. But you weren't just going to take everybody out at one time. He had a plan. And I would like to say thanks to my great-grandfather because to this day we still have our land, we still have our property. But this was something that was done very frequently they would go into people's communities and terrorize them and try to take their land yeah so let's see what happens in this case my father was enraged when he returned he decided to wait until i was born which would be soon and then the family would move i'm not sure why he made this decision for he was not a frightened negro as most then were and many still are today. My father was a big six foot four, very black man. He had only one eye. How he had lost the other one, I have never known. He was from Reynolds, Georgia, where he had left school after the third or maybe fourth grade. He believed, as did Marcus Garvey, that freedom, independence, and self-respect could never be achieved by the Negro in America, and that therefore the Negro should leave America to the white man and return to his African land of origin. Among the reasons my father had decided to risk and dedicate his life to help disseminate this philosophy among his people was that he had seen four of his six brothers die by violence, three of them killed by white men, including one by lynching. What my father could not know then was that of the remaining three, including himself, only one, my uncle Jim, would die in bed of natural causes. Northern white police were later to shoot my uncle Oscar and my father was finally himself to die by the white man's hands. It has always been my belief that I too will die by violence. I've done all that I can to be prepared. 
One afternoon in 1931, when Wilfred, Hilda, Filbert, and I came home, my mother and father were having one of their arguments. There had lately been a lot of tension around the house because of Black Legion threats. Anyway, my father had taken one of the rabbits which we were raising and ordered my mother to cook it. We raised rabbits but sold them to whites. My father had taken a rabbit from the rabbit pen. He had pulled off the rabbit's head. Hmm, content warning, animal stuff, stuff. Sorry. <laughs> he was so strong he needed no knife to behead the animals. With one twist of his big black hands, he, he simply twisted it off and threw the neck at, back at my mother's feet. My mother was crying. She started to skin the rabbit preparatory to cooking it. But my father was so angry, he slammed on out the front door and started walking up the road toward town. It was then that my mother had this vision. She had always been a strange woman in this sense and had always had a strong intuition of things about to happen. And most of her children are the same way, I think. When something is about to happen, I can feel something, sense something. I never have known something to happen that has caught me completely off guard, except once. And that was when years later, I discovered facts I couldn't believe about a man who up until that discovery, I would gladly have given my life for. My father was well up the road when my mother ran, screaming out onto the porch. Early, early, she screamed his name. She clutched up her apron in one hand and ran down across the yard and into the road. My father turned around. He saw her. For some reason, considering how angry he had been when he left, he waved at her, but he kept on going. She told me later, my mother did, that she had a vision of my father's end. All the rest of the afternoon, she was not herself, crying and nervous and upset. She finished cooking the rabbit and put the whole thing in the warmer back of the black stove. When my father was not back home by our bedtime, my mother hugged and clutched us and we felt strange, not knowing what to do because she had never acted like that. I remember waking up to the sound of my mother screaming again. When I scrambled out, I saw the police in the living room. They were trying to calm her down. She had snatched on her clothes to go with them, and all of us children who were staring knew without anyone having to say it that something terrible had happened to our father. My mother was taken by the police to the hospital into a room where a sheet was over my father in a bed, and she wouldn't look. She was afraid to look. Probably it was wise that she didn't. My father's skull on one side was crushed in, I was told later. Negroes in Lansing have always whispered that he was attacked and then laid across some tracks for a streetcar to run over him. His body was cut almost in half. He lived two and a half hours in that condition. Negroes then were stronger than they are now, especially Georgia Negroes. Negroes born in Georgia had to be strong simply to survive. It was morning when we children at home got the word that he was dead. I was six. I can remember a vague commotion, the house filled up with people crying, saying bitterly, that the white black legion had finally gotten him. My mother was hysterical. In the bedroom, women were holding smelling salts under her nose. She was still hysterical at the funeral. I don't have a very clear memory of the funeral either. Oddly, the main thing I remember is that it wasn't in a church and that surprised me since my father was a preacher and I had been where he preached people's funerals and churches, but his was in a funeral home. And I remember that during the service, a big black fly came down and landed on my father's face. 
and Wilford sprang up from his chair, and he shooed the fly away, and he came groping back to his chair. There were folding chairs for us to sit on, and the tears were streaming down his face. When we went by the casket, I remember that I thought it looked as if my father's strong black face had been dusted with flour, and I wished they hadn't put on such a lot of it. Back in the big four-room house, there were many visitors for another week or so. They were good friends of the family, such as the Lions from Mason, 12 miles away, and the Walkers, McGuire's, Lisco's, the Greens, Randolph's, and the Turners, and others from Lansing, and a lot of people from other towns whom I had seen at the Garvey meetings. We children adjusted more easily than our mother did. We couldn't see, as clearly as she did, the trials that lay ahead. As the visitors tapered off, she became very concerned about collecting the two insurance policies that my father had always been proud he carried. He had always said that families should be protected in case of death. One policy apparently paid off without any problem, the smaller one. I don't know the amount of it. I would imagine it was not more than $1,000 and maybe half of that. But after that money came and my mother had paid out a lot of it for the funeral and expenses, she began going into town and returning very upset. The company that had issued the bigger policy was balking at paying off. They were claiming that my father had committed suicide. Visitors came again and there was bitter talk about white people. How could my father bash himself in the head and then get down across a streetcar to be run over? So there we were. My mother was 34 years old now with no husband, no provider or protector to take care of her eight children. But some kind of a family routine got going again. And for as long as the first insurance money lasted, we did all right. Wilfred, who was a pretty stable fellow, began to act older than his age. I think he had the sense to see when the rest of us didn't what was in the wind for us. He quietly quit school and went in town in search of work. He took any kind of job he could find, and he would come home dog-tired in the evenings and give whatever he had made to my mother. Hilda, who always had been quiet too, attended to the babies. Philbert and I didn't contribute anything. We just fought all the time. Each other at home and then at school, we would team up and fight the white kids. Sometimes the fights would be racial in nature, but they might be about anything. Reginald came under my wing. Since he had grown out of the toddling stage, he and I had become very close. I suppose I enjoyed the fact that he was the little one under me who looked up to me. My mother began to buy on credit. My father had always been very strongly against credit. Credit is the first step into debt and back into slavery, he had always said. And then she went to work herself. She would go into Lansing and find different jobs in housework or sewing for white people. They didn't realize usually that she was a Negro. A lot of white people around there didn't want Negroes in their houses. She would do fine until in some way or other it got to the people who she was or whose widow she was, and then she would be let go. I remember how she used to come home crying but trying to hide it because she had lost a job that she needed so much. Once when one of us, I cannot remember which, had to go for something to where she was working, and the people saw us and realized she was actually a Negro, she was fired on the spot, and she came home crying, this time not hiding it. When the state welfare people began coming to our house, we would come from school sometimes and find them talking with our mother, asking a thousand questions. <clears throat> they acted and looked at her and at us around 
around in our house in a way that had about it the feeling, at least for me, that we were not people. In their eyesight, we were just things. That was all. My mother began to receive two checks, a welfare check and I believe a widow's pension. The checks helped, but they weren't enough as many of us as there were. When they came about the first of the month, one always was already owed in full, if not more, to the man at the grocery store. And after that, the other one didn't last long. We began to go swiftly downhill. The physical downhill wasn't as quick as the psychological. My mother was, above everything else, a proud woman, and it took its toll on her that she was accepting charity, and her feelings were communicated to us. She would speak sharply to the man at the grocery store for padding the bill, telling him that she wasn't ignorant and he didn't like that. She would talk back sharply to the state welfare people, telling them that she was a grown woman able to raise her children, that it wasn't necessary for them to keep coming around so much, meddling in our lives, and they didn't like that. But the monthly welfare check was their pass. They acted as if they owned us, as if we were their private property. As much as my mother would have liked to, she couldn't keep them out. She would get particularly incensed when they began insisting upon drawing us older children aside, one at a time, out on the porch or somewhere and asking us questions or telling us things against our mother and against each other. We couldn't understand why. If the state was willing to give us packages of meat, sacks of potatoes and fruit, and cans of all kinds of things, our mother obviously hated to accept. We really couldn't understand. What I later understood was that my mother was making a desperate effort to preserve her pride and ours. Pride was just about all we had to preserve, but by 1934, we really began to suffer. This was about the worst depression year and no one we knew had enough to eat or live on. Some old family friends visited us now and then. At first, they brought food. Though it was charity, my mother took it. Wilfred was working to help. My mother was working when she couldn't find any kind of job. In Lansing, there was a bakery where for a nickel, a couple of us children would buy a tall flour of sack of day-old bread and cookies and then walk the two miles back out in the country to our house. Our mother knew, I guess, dozens of ways to cook things with bread and out of bread. Stew tomatoes with bread. Maybe that would be a meal. Sometimes like French toast that we had in the eggs. Bread pudding, sometimes with raisins in it. If we got hold of some hamburger, it came to the table more bread than meat. The cookies that were always in the sack with the bread, we just gobbled them down straight. But there were times when there wasn't even a nickel and we would be so hungry, we were dizzy. My mother would boil a big pot of dandelion greens and we would eat that. I remember that some small-minded neighbor put it out and children would tease us that we ate fried grass. Sometimes if we were lucky, we would have oatmeal or cornmeal mush three times a day, or mush in the morning and cornbread at night. Philbert and I were growing up enough to quit fighting, long enough to take the 22 caliber rifle that had been our father's and shoot rabbits that some white neighbors up or down the road would buy. I know now that they just did it to help us because they, like everyone, shot their own rabbits. Sometimes I remember Philbert and I would take little Reginald along with us. He wasn't very strong, but he was always so proud to be along. We would trap muskrats out in the little creek in back of our house, and we would lie quiet until unsuspecting bullfrogs appeared 
and we could spear them, cut off their legs, and sell them for a nickel a pair to people who lived up and down the road. The whites seemed less restricted in their dietary tastes. Then, about late 1934, I would guess, something began to happen. Some kind of psychological deterioration hit our family circle and began to eat away at our pride. Perhaps it was the constant tangible evidence that we were destitute. We had known other families who had gone on relief. We had known without anyone in our home ever expressing it, that we had felt prouder not to be at the depot where the free food was passed out. And now we were among them. At school, the on relief finger suddenly was pointed at us too, and sometimes it was said aloud. It seemed that everything to eat in our house was stamped not to be sold. All welfare food bore this stamp to keep the recipients from selling it. It's a wonder we didn't come to think of not to be sold as a brand name. Sometimes instead of going home from school, I walked the two miles up the road into Lansing. I began drifting from store to store, hanging around outside where things like apples were displayed in boxes and barrels and baskets, and I would watch my chance and steal me a treat. You know what was a treat to me? Anything. Or I began to drop in about dinner time at the home of some family that we knew. I knew that they knew exactly why I was there, but they never embarrassed me by letting on. They would invite me to stay for supper and I would stuff myself. I am going to stop there. And we will pick up on next Tuesday with the rest of this chapter. Whew. What becomes of people who live in abject poverty through no fault of their own because their family has been destroyed. Something to think about. We have got a good 10 to 15 minutes. So if you want to join me in conversation and talk about anything that we've shared from either Malcolm X autobiography or the historically black phrases, you can click on the two persons down at the bottom and I will bring you on to share. If you are listening to us, our podcast uh, version of this message today for Daring Dialogues, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for your shares. Thank you for your follows. Thank you for supporting our podcast version. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I have been your host, Shante Charles. Be well, and most importantly, be light.